Welcome back to B-Side Stories. You're with Martin Andrews and... And Perrine Gilkerson. Um, and here... Now, I haven't actually checked with you about your last name, but I found it on the internet, so I think it's right. Seems like you've got an appropriate last name there. Uh, yep, Gardner. Yep. Russ Gardner. Spelled slightly <laughs> differently. It's I-N-E-R. Oh, wow. Fairly appropriate for (laughs) what I'm doing. Yep. And so you are the volunteer coordinator at Manawa Karioi? Yeah, one of the people. I'm on the committee. I'm one of the longest serving committee members. There's a few people who have been around longer than me, but they've sort of come and gone and some have come back again. But I've been hanging around for the last 17 years. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) That's that's some good, solid um, dedication to a project. Yeah, well, I just found it was a project that I really got into, you know, started off a bit casual with it and then the longer I did it the more I enjoyed it the more I could see the potentials for it and things to do yeah (laughs) keeps me busy in my spare time yeah so can you just tell us a little bit about the project and um where you're based and um your name and I mean the project's name (laughs) and we've done your name and um Start us off. Okay, so we are an incorporated society called the Manawa Karioi Ecological Restoration Society. The name Manawa Karioi is a name given to one of the gullies in the area that we're doing native forest restoration in. It's had that name for three to four hundred years or thereabouts. Translates roughly to where the heart desires to linger, and it's the name of a gully that has a freshwater spring coming up out of the ground, flowing down what would have once flowed to the sea in Island Bay but now disappears into a stormwater culvert a couple of hundred metres further down. But um, the project itself is something like 12 hectare block of land, former sheep and dairy farm, Um, very rugged and hilly, uh, not very good farmland. So the land was... um, previously owned by the Home of Compassion, which is a um, order of Catholic nuns um, in Island Bay. They run a, a number of various projects, um, but they used to own quite a bit of land that they tried to be self-sufficient on, but being rugged hill coastal for, um, land around Wellington, you can't run much stock on it, can't grow much on it. So they ended up selling a lot of the land to Bruce Stewart, who was the founder of Tapu Teranga Marae, which was formed in 1977 um, as a, I guess what you'd nowadays call an urban marae. Um, Bruce wasn't from the Wellington area. He was um, of Tainui descent and I think um, Te Arawa. And he moved to Wellington and decided he wanted to set up a project primarily for young urban Māori who hadn't grown up in their um, traditional areas and were you know, beginning to lose touch with their culture. So he established um, an urban marae, got people to come in and help build it, um, help them reconnect with their culture, learn skills, help the homeless and things like that. And after he'd been running that for about 10 years, he had an idea of um, establishing what he called a a reserve for bush and birds, which was quite a new concept back then, um, you know. And And so this is in the 80s sometime. This was in the late 1980s. I mean, at that time, we were still clear-felling beach forests to turn into wood chips and things like that. So his idea was fairly new. Um, People had campaigned to protect established forests but not many people had actually started re-establishing degraded habitats or anything like that so 
he had this idea and put out a call to the community and the Manuakarioi Society was formed through that in 1990. Um, they established a plant nursery at the Marae grounds and began collecting seeds. So in 1991 they began the first plantings in one of the gullies that we very imaginatively call the main gully next to the car park. And... Yeah, just continued with planting that. I didn't get involved until the year 2000, um, so I don't know a lot from those early years, but they were largely focusing on this one gully, and there's several other gullies over the ridge from that. So when I got involved, I had a friend that was living there at the time, so I just went and talked to him and said I was interested in was something. Was living at the Marae. At the Marae, yeah. Um, I told him how I was interested in helping out because I'd heard of the replanting on Matu in the middle of the harbour. And he said, yeah, come along, showed me around. I got involved in a little bit of planting and nursery work. Then he moved out and pretty much I was left largely on my own because volunteers come and go and they had... A bit of a link with students at Victoria University, but of course once people graduate, sometimes the networks they've established fall apart and can be hard to establish new ones if you don't know any people there. And um, We used to have regular working bees on the second Sunday of every month, but that was quite problematic because people would always forget which Sunday is the second Sunday. You know, they wake up on Sunday mornings, oh, is it this week or next week? And <laughs> consequently for years, and I mean like for the first 10 years that I was working there, um, sometimes no one would show up. You know, I'd turn up to run a working bee. I'd be the only one there. Sometimes one person, two people had come along, very occasionally a small group. But um, then some of the people that had helped found Manuakarioi, got re-involved about 2004 and we had the nucleus of a new committee. Things began to pick up but it would sort of ebb and flow for quite a few years and uh, to be honest it wasn't a very appealing job for volunteers because it was a steep hillside covered largely in gorse and blackberry and it was a real struggle getting around. There'd been a track that was bulldozed, about a two-kilometre loop track. It was a four-wheel drive sort of track. Um, and that was completely covered in gorse when I got involved. You know, most of it was impassable. The gorse is two to three metres high. Um, so was that part of the working bees? Yeah, we were trying to hack that. our way through the gorse because um, some people from the Botanical Society and other, other people had come up with the idea that if we clear the gorse off the track and then plant a tree every two metres on both sides of the track. Eventually the tree will um, overgrow the gorse, the gorse gets shaded out and dies. But of course, when the gorse is on two kilometres of track, that's mm. a lot of hacking through prickly bushes. So, mm. you know, we didn't have a lot of people that were keen to do it, <laughs> including myself, but I stuck at it. Um, and eventually we started getting somewhere. Uh, after a few years, we had enough money to get a guy to come in from up a hut with a tractor with what's called a flail deck, which is an enormous lawnmower on the back of his tractor, and he just reversed into this <laughs> track of gorse and destroyed it. You know, in the course of a day, he did more than we had achieved in years because, you know, we would clear a section of track, um, you know, a few hundred metres long, then move on to the next section, 
by the time we'd cleared that, the first section had started growing back in gorse yeah. and blackberry, so it was really futile. But, you know, we we trialled different methods and we were finding that things we planted were pushing the gorse out but very slowly. But, you know, once we had got the tractor in to clear it we could and we could afford to pay someone to come in on a regular basis to mow it with a ride-on mower, like quite a four-wheel drive ride-on mower, not the one you'd sort of use for people who have lifestyle blocks or something like that. That really helped things because we weren't wasting our time clearing the gorse. Instead, we were focusing on planting because um, we were also having a problem with our <coughs> nursery being overstocked. We just couldn't plant things as fast as we were getting given them from Forest and Bird and the City Council. And once we got the tracks cleared, we suddenly were able to plant things a lot faster and keep on top of the nursery, you know, and we began to decrease the amount of plants that we ordered. And at the same time, we began to diversify what we were planting. We were looking at um, botanical records from 100 years ago, as well as studying what things were growing in the little remnant forest patches around Wellington. From that, we worked out what was missing from our area because, you know, there's over 300 plant species that are... um, found around Wellington City, but in South Wellington, particularly around our project, there was only about 30 or 40 of those three to 400 that were naturally mm. present. You know, there's no Kekatea, there was no Rimu, there was no Nico or Kohikoi or anything. So, you know, we began putting in those missing species. And as we've done that and the virus has begun to mature, we've really noticed you know, the wildlife is responding, right? Yeah, I was um, reading that article, I think you just posted last night, or <laughs> um, about the, um, the Kiridu oh, the... coming back oh, to yeah, yeah. Wellington. Yeah, and that I was, was a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. okay. I can't read the dates. <laughs> um, I was really surprised that um, you said, uh, you know, 20 or so years ago, 20 years ago, there was only about one breeding pair in Yeah, Mountain. yeah, I was talking to someone, I forget who it was, but um, <laughs> someone, I think they were from the Botanical Society, and they were saying, you know, in the late 1980s, early 90s, there's one known breeding pair of Kiridu, and something like wow. five or six breeding pairs of Tui. That is incredible. <laughs> That's incredible, you but when now. you think about it, you know, from the mid 1800s, large tracts of forest were cleared, and most of it was just set on fire. So, you know, in the space of a few years, most of the habitat was gone. Birds would disappear with it, like quite literally disappear. Mm. You know, the huia became extinct in the early 1900s. Some of the last ones were seen in the Hutt Valley around 1910, but you know. Once you burn down the forest, everything that depends on the food in the forest to survive will die with it. Mm. And, you know, there wasn't enough large pockets of forest left to support the larger bird species. But, you know, Wellington's geography favours natural regeneration. So there were these small pockets like Otari Bush. If you look at photos of that from the early 1900s, it's only a fraction of the size that it is now. Mm. But, you know... It spreads, the birds spread the seeds, and it, it's sort of self-perpetuating in that respect. Yeah, and so you're getting some of that wildlife back. Coming back, yeah. Now, so what a... Kiridu have been largely absent from Wellington for 100 and nearly 150 years, likewise with Kaka. But it wasn't until Kaka were released at um, Zealandia about 
10, 12 years ago, you know, that they were re-established in Wellington. They'd been absent for probably 120, 130 years or wow. maybe even more. And now they're so present. And now there's the hundreds of them. Yeah. But, you know, they depend on large forest trees to survive. And ironically, the pine trees that you find around places of Wellington do provide them with roosting and nesting sites. And they do like to perch in the tops of trees. Um, so, though, you know, those pine trees are a bit of a surrogate until all the totara and things that we're planting get big enough to take over from that. Mm. And so you've got a bit of a phased planting plan? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as things have grown, we've noticed the bird species moving in. Um, you know, one of our members saw a kiddoo in Island Bay about 10 years ago, and it was the first one he had ever seen there. Yeah. And over the last couple of years, we've noticed one, possibly two, hanging around in the bush there mainly in the main gully where the older forest is because they do prefer a more diverse forest for feeding on. But we've got a small resident population of kaka now that um, tend to roost there. Haven't had any signs of them breeding there, but that will happen eventually. Mm. But again, you know, that will depend on the forest diversifying a lot more. But um, other things, we get shining cuckoos come in. You know, a few years ago, we didn't have any of them. Now I tend to hear them every spring when they fly back in from, I think it's the Cook Islands where they go to over the winter. And they come back here to breed for the spring and summer before heading back to the tropics. But, I mean, they're quite an interesting one because studies have shown, you know, they overwinter in the tropics, but when they come back over here, they tend to go to the places that they've always lived in. But you could imagine when the forest has burned down in Wellington, in the 1800s, suddenly they disappeared as well because mm. they'd fly back and there was nothing there. Um, but as the forest has regenerated, they've started moving back into the area as well. Kingfishers, get a few of them around as well. Mm. Yeah, so it's all picking up. I mean, it was a smaller bird species like yeah. um, the fantails that were the first to establish then tuis. Now we're getting the larger bird species and the rare ones. Shining, oh, shining cook is not particularly rare, but it is around Wellington. Yeah. Mm. Oh, nice. Um, and so you, on Sunday, yesterday? No, the day before, you just had um, your first of your... August series of plantings. Yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd tried different methods of like, how do we get volunteers to turn up? And we realised that trying to do the second Sunday of the month tended <laughs> to slip people's that? minds. <laughs> and a few years ago, one of the guys came up with an idea. We had a large um, grassy slope to plant out. And he said, oh, well, let's just do every Sunday until we finish it. Mm -hmm. And it took just over a month, so and it, and it worked really well because people had come along. They knew, okay, if I just turn up on Sunday, people will be there. They don't yeah. have to remember a date or a week or anything like that. Mm. Just a month. And August is a good planting month. Yeah, we tend to plant from late April through to early September, but this year we did a month of planting in May because you know there's a lot more moisture in the soil the daytime temperatures are cooler so you can plant things and they'll survive you know if you try and plant in summer they'll die if there's weeks with no rain so may the weather's still good we did a lot of planting then we called it quits for a couple of months because you know june and july can get pretty miserable august can be a bit sketchy as well but you know. <laughs> august is midwinter in wellington well, yeah sure. yeah but it's not as bad as july 
right. we found, you know, you do get the nice days as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing every Sunday this month yeah. until, and if we don't get all the plants in the ground by then, we'll continue on into September if we have to. Yeah, and so you've got about 600 to plant this month? Uh, yeah, about that much, yeah. And yeah, you've done, how many did you get into the ground yesterday? On um, Sunday, probably just oh, over Sunday. 100, but um, that was quite a crappy day. It was really windy it was and raining. Pretty but crappy. Um, we were also on quite a steep slope, difficult access, but some of the other sites we've got a plant are lower down on the hill or on the flat, so they take less time to walk to, yeah. much easier to dig holes, things like that. So we'll get a lot more done because you know we can do up to hundred and fifty in a day. Mm. Um, yeah, if the conditions are right. But, and how many people did you get along? Um, probably about 15. Our last working That's... bee in May, we got 30 people turning up. Yeah. And that was actually starting to get a bit unmanageable because, you know, you get a lot of people show up if they've never done planting before. You've got to show them how because um, it's not simply a case of digging a hole and bunging a plant and and chucking some dirt around it. You know, you've got to do it properly, otherwise it will die and you might as well have not bothered. And so, so yeah, yeah, don't want that. We focus on quality rather than quantity of planting. Yeah. And so you are there with a crew of other volunteers yeah. who will... Who... Be there to just help anyone, show them how to do the planting, keep an eye on them, check up on what they've done, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, this um, winter we have been planting in the Manawakarioi Gully, which is a fairly historically significant site. You know, it's the only place on the reserve that we have a name for that's a name that's been around for hundreds of years. But um, also at the bottom of the gully where the spr- there's a freshwater spring, there's a water reservoir built there um, just over 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. That was the original water supply for the Home of Compassion. And a few years back, we uncovered the track that was built to um, carry the supply or materials up for building that. Yeah. Gully, I mean that um, reservoir in the gully, and that track was called Union Road because it was built by trade unionists as volunteer labour. Yeah, and so we're planting up just above that water reservoir. And there's a small bit of established bush, quite a bit of natural regeneration going on, and we're busy putting in about 40 different plant species there just to increase that biodiversity. We sent out an email, I think it was yesterday, um, talking about the latest um, project I guess we've got or plant species we're focusing on for this month which is Kohi Kohi which again is one of those trees largely absent from Wellington it was the main forest canopy component um, grows to about 15-20 metres high um, in coastal areas it'll be one of the most common trees but of course it needs shelter to grow in or to get established once it's growing to a certain height, you know, it's pretty tough by then, but you can't just plant them out in the open because the wind and the sun will get to them. So we're planting that under some of the established trees that are 10, 15 years old. But that's a particularly important tree, partly because it was the main canopy component, but also it's one of the few trees that flowers and fruits in the middle of winter when there's not much other food for birds. Like, you know, um, you get... um, Tuis and other smaller forest birds feeding on the nectar when the plants are flowering in mm. July. And then the fruit takes about a year to ripen. And then when it ripens in winter, the larger birds will come along and eat it. But of course, most of that, there used to be thousands of these trees all over South Wellington. Now we know of one, 
over the ridge from us in Tawatawa Reserve that's probably 80 to 100 years old, maybe more, and there are five on the Miramar Peninsula. That's six trees in total. When you consider yeah. there used to be probably about five, maybe 10,000 of them, you can see how that one species disappearing can affect the whole ecosystem because it's providing winter food, and once that food supply's gone, things starve to death over the winter. Yeah. Yeah, so been quite a learning curve just working out you know <laughs> what flowers what fruits what time of year what feeds on it and trying to fill all those gaps but of course the more we do that the more the birds feed on it and spread it round for us and it sounds like um you're linked up with a few other restoration projects in yeah. the area so they yeah well when Manawakarioi was established in 1990 there was only the planting that was happening on Matiu Island in the harbour it was a forest and bird project as far as I'm aware, there's nothing else in Wellington at all. Mm. About two years later, the Southern Environment Association was formed in Island Bay, and they, I think, were initially focusing on the quarry that was down on the south coast because that was quarrying into a hillside with some rare plants on. Um, so that quarry was eventually closed down, but then they focused on planting in Tawatawa Reserve, which is quite a popular walking area for people with dogs. Um, they've been going for 25 years now, so they're the probably third oldest project in Wellington. But um, when I got involved in Manawakarioi in 2000, we had a meeting at the Marae where other groups were invited in, um, probably this is about 2001, and there was something like 30 groups from Wellington and the Wairata Upper. And we were like, wow, this is amazing. There's so many groups. Nowadays, there's over 100. So you can see how the concept has just really taken off. People have picked up with it and really taking it places. Yeah. Mm. And so do you, are you still quite strongly associated with the marae? It's obviously still Taputeranga yep, marae yep, land. Yep, the land's owned by the marae. Yep. We're a separate incorporated society. Um, we don't have a lot of day-to-day contact because they're busy with all the things they do. You know, they often have groups staying there almost every weekend, either from out of town or people booking the place for conferences and things. So they're really busy, but we do keep in touch with them. Um, our committee chairman, uh, you know, he, or current committee chairman, um, was involved in setting the project up in 1990, and he's sort of come and gone several times over the years. Mm-hmm. But he has quite a long-standing connection with the Fano there, so he goes in and visits him every now and then and then we communicate via email and meet up with them in person every now and then mm. and yeah. you um do you get them on board for major decisions that you're making as well um not really we just they basically they gave us a co-papa of like restoring the forest right. and leave us to do it you know but you know obviously we don't just go ahead and do everything that we want without keeping them in the loop there but um, yeah, just in this year in particular, we've had a lot more contact with them, just re-establishing networks mm. and links, you know, because if you don't talk in person enough, you begin to lose touch and mm. that. Um, Bruce Stewart, who is the founder of the Marae and came up with the idea for Manua Karioi, um, died about a month or so back. Um and, you know, for the last few years he was quite ill, so it was right. difficult to have a lot of contact with him. But um, we now co- um, 
communicate with his wife and one of his daughters in particular who are quite involved. So, you know, it's that next generation taking over yeah. that some of them were children when Manawakarioi was started. So mm. they were there right at the beginning. And they've grown up seeing this project happening and some of the same people are still around. So, you know, there's yeah. two and a half decades of contact there. Mm. Wow. Well, we're getting to the end of our show here. Um, but I think we need to encourage people listening to come along and do some planting. Yeah, it's every <laughs> Sunday this month. One, um, we depart, I like to say depart rather than meet at 1pm at the Taputuranga Marae car park. Which is that is, for people like me who are always running a bit Yeah, because if you say meet at 1 o'clock, yeah. people take that as meaning 10 past 1. And sometimes you'd wait around 15 minutes, you know, no one would show up. So we're like, well, we depart at 1 if you're not here, give us a ring and we'll be able to give you directions over the phone. <laughs> Sometimes people get lost because it's quite a rabbit warren of tracks there. But, um, yeah, the, the driveway is signposted at the end of Danube Street. You know, it's not an easy place to find in terms of being able to see it driving down the road. So if you just remember the end of Danube Street, you'll see the sign drive up to the car park and we'll be there. There's an interpretation board shelter um, that you can't miss. Yeah, and then from there we walk to wherever we're planting. Yep, and they can find you. People can find you on Facebook. Yeah, yep. We've um, Manawakarioi Ecological Restoration Project, and then we've got a website as well called manawakarioi.nz, where we post all details of working bees and put all our news articles, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's not just about planting as well. In the spring, summer, we do track maintenance, which involves trimming back vegetation growing across the track, you know, encroaching from the sides, as well as recontouring some of the tracks to avoid them turning into bogs in winter, putting in drainage channels, things like that. So yeah. it's year round work, but, you know, the track maintenance tends to be once a month. Right. You know, we'll do a special mail out for that. Cool. Oh, well, lots of ways for people to get involved. Yep. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming in and all the best for the Sunday's plantings. Hopefully see you at one of them. Yep. <laughs> there, I've committed it. Okay. Um, yeah, and yeah, it sounds like a great project and thanks for bringing our bird song back. Cool, And thank all you. the rest. Thanks. Thanks, Perrine. Thank you, Ross and Ben. Thanks for coming and joining us this evening. Um, sounds like you're doing great stuff out there, Ross. Um, and whenever I walk the tracks around Wellington, I'm like, man, who are the people that clean these up and keep them? <laughs> so thanks for everything that you do. Really appreciate it. Great. I was out hiking yesterday and I was just like, man, somebody, they're so beautifully looked after, aren't they? Yeah. Like, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a huge network of volunteers around Wellington yes. that do that, even on the council-owned tracks. Volunteers helping on that too. Yeah, great. Oh well, um, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right, Perrine. Well, that's us. Um, Any any other? Oh no, I'm not going to get started again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well, we're going to leave you tonight with uh, the wonderful Ruth Mundy and uh, one of her tricks, bullshit. If you haven't seen Ruth, local Wellington songwriter. Do good out and see her. She's amazing. She'll break your heart and uh, you'll fall a little bit in love. So this is us uh, for another week. This year I've been with Martin Andrews and Preen for B-Side Stories. That if I grow old If my hair turns grey And my hands turn blue 
by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding the Access Internet Radio Project. 